The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I had a plan which would bring us to verse 14 on Christmas Eve, and I'm still pursuing that same plan, but it means I have to push together. I was going to speak from just the first two verses last time. I'm going to bring a further, putting two sermons into one is what I'm doing here with John 1, 1 through 5. This very important opening of what we call the prologue. The first 18 verses of John are a prologue or introduction before any action or narrative happens, uh, the, these words need to be pondered carefully. Listen to God's word, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is God's holy word. Martin Luther looked back once upon this gospel of John, and here's what he spoke about its importance. Luther said, here is the tender, genuine chief gospel. If any tyrant should succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures so that a single copy of John and a single copy of Romans would survive, all of Christianity could be salvaged. That's an interesting idea. Salvaging all of Christianity from one gospel and one letter of Paul. Well, John's gospel is certainly that frequent portion of Scripture that we point new believers or those that are seeking Christ to read. How many millions of pamphlets just containing the gospel of John have been printed over the years and given to folks to read? And I know from testimonies of individuals, of people who have read this gospel, and without the aid of preaching or personal mentoring or from any minister They have been struck by the Holy Spirit through the gospel of John to see Christ and bow before him. And yet at the same time, here is a gospel that of the four, the scholar would say this one is the most layered in terms of meaning and theology and depth. So it's something on the one hand that a baby can wade in, but an elephant can swim. It's a tremendous book for us to undertake and consider, and I'm not going into any much of any long introduction. I'm going to introduce it more as we go along. But I'll say this morning that without a doubt, John is the most unique gospel. If you don't know the term, we use the word synoptic 
to describe the other three as a collection. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels, S-Y-N. That means they look alike or they speak alike. There's so much similarity. There's a lot of overlap in the ways those gospels are put together. They have their uniqueness, their, their differences of viewpoint, but they largely, they relate more similar material than different. But when we come to John, we've got something that is really quite unique. Certainly, it's the same Jesus Christ who's being described, the same disciples, but the viewpoint and the depths and the insights and the omissions and the new material are such that this is by far the overwhelming, unique gospel. For example, no account at all of the birth of Jesus in John. You see how we start here in eternity, not in Bethlehem. His baptism and wilderness temptation are not here. No parable of Jesus told anywhere in John. Many things that the others would have, plus others that are here. We'll see, for example, the wedding at Cana, chapter 2. That's not in any other gospel. The Last Supper is not in John as it is in the others. So there's going to be a lot of different viewpoint that we see, and yet all coherently painting one picture of Jesus Christ. We do believe that this was the last of the gospels to be written. Dating is a little bit difficult, but it seems like a good consensus would be somewhere around A.D. 80. They used to think later than that, but the scholars seem to feel now that it would be about 80, approximately 20 years after the others. We know that John knew the other Gospels. He gives evidence of that, and we believe that he assumed many of his readers would also know what the others said, and so he wasn't just reiterating or repeating things that others had said. I think of an experience our family had more than 30 years ago when our children were quite young. We vacationed once in Ontario, Canada at a cottage that belonged to good friends who lived in western New York where we lived at that time. And uh, these friends loaned us their cottage for the week. It was very kind of them. And so when we were leaving, I inquired, well, all right, I'll need a key, of course, to get in. I'm sure it's like, they said, oh, that's not a problem. When you get there, go around to the back, and at the back door, just reach up, and on the ledge above the door, there's the key. Now, I'm not that kind of a person for that kind of security or insecurity. I thought, here are folks who live two hours away from a cottage that they only visit every few months or so, and they're willing to have a key in the very first place any burglar is going to look for it, right above the door. Well, sure enough, it was there. And I marveled further when I saw some of the Uh, fine objects that were in this cottage, which any burglar could have easily accessed and taken home with him. But that was the way they did it. As we survey these early verses of John, especially these 14 verses leading us up to Christmas Eve this month, we will discover that God's living key to the gate of eternity is right above the front door of the Gospel of John. The key is Jesus, the eternal Christ. He has put that key here. God, the Holy Spirit, has inspired John to write it this way. One commentator said this. He said, the Holy Spirit has placed the key right over the entrance. For the introductory verses of this fourth gospel present the Lord Jesus Christ in his divine relationships and unveil his most essential glory. 
What we have here, in other words, is what some would call the cosmic Christ. Not simply Jesus of Nazareth, a baby born in a, a feed, uh, you know, a cattle stall and left in a manger, but someone who was obviously a much greater person than you would know if you only knew the story of Matthew and the birth or the story of Luke and the birth. Here we have clearly, right out of the chute, the incomparable, majestic Lord Christ, who is declared to be God's world-shaking first word ever spoken, and also God's life-changing last word. Christ reveals in himself what the Father has to say to humankind. So he's the key to the riddle of meaningful human lives in space and time history. Not a brass key or an iron key, a person who comes from outside space and time and enters in to our experience. We sang the hymn, Who is this? So weak and helpless. Who is this child of a Hebrew maid? Well, that's the question John is not just asking, but answering in his whole gospel. He's telling you who Jesus is. And he reaches back before Bethlehem, before the discovery of Mary's pregnancy in Nazareth. He reaches back into the primordial ages, eons before there was even a planet Earth to answer the question. He speaks of a pre-existent, divine Lord Jesus Christ who shines forth from the very opening words of this gospel. I would tell you, some would say, well, there's a lot of complexity in John, and they're right. And yet, the aim and goal of John is so simple to express. John writes by the Spirit of God for this purpose, to convince you that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. And that's what he would have you see. Now, first of all, this morning we assert a great point from John 1, 1 and 2, and that is the pre-existence of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now, first let's take that title, the Word, before I speak of pre-existence. What is this title, the Word? We know he's talking about Christ, and yet you don't see it, you wouldn't see that just from the first verse alone, but by the time he gets down to about verse 10 or more, you know he's talking about Jesus. The Word. Why is he called the Word? An odd title for a person. A word, of course, is a unit of communication. Without words, we can't write letters, we can't do compositions or write essays or publish books, and boy, you young people can't even tweet. You know, someday my wife is convinced I'm going to tweet. I haven't done it yet. I'll let you know when it happens. Without words, we can't convey thoughts, can we? We can't convey meaning and ideas to other people. And so here is this unusual title for Christ. It's borrowing on, of course, very consciously, the opening of Genesis. In the beginning, John 1.1. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1. And what does it say in Genesis 1 that God did of such significance? The phrase over and over again in Genesis 1 comes, and God said. God said, and something happened. God said, something else happened. 
God spoke his creative word, a powerful word that brought things into being that previously did not exist. Isaiah made that emphasis of speaking for the Lord. My word that goes out from my mouth does not return empty. It accomplishes purposes that I have. When God speaks, he is making things happen. He is creating. He can say, let there be light. He can say, rise and walk. He can say, your sins are forgiven. And God's word accomplishes what he speaks. And so this rare, unusual emphasis that Jesus Christ is the Word, capital W, of God, tells us He is speaking, He is revealing, showing us in His whole life, not just His words that He come out of His mouth, but who He is. He's showing us who God is. He's revealing to us what God wants to reveal. And so from this eternal Word, John 1.1 says, Christ is pre-existent. It's stated there. He was with God in the beginning. Again, Matthew and Luke open their gospel and say, well, an angel came to a woman named Mary, and this happened, and this happened, and she gave birth to her child, and you certainly are given to understand something about that child, but you are not given this deep, prehistoric understanding that this one who was born in Bethlehem was with God all the way back at the beginning of Genesis 1, before time existed. In the beginning, God created. John 1.1 says, before there was a physical universe, the Father and the Son dwelt together in an eternal fellowship. And there was no point at which you would say, well, you know, first there was just God the Father for a long time, and then he thought it would be a good idea to have a son. No, there was no point at which there was not the Son. The Son eternally dwelt with the Father. And we don't see God ever spoken of as less than this triune fellowship. Now, later on in this gospel, Jesus is going to hint at this preexistence again when he will say in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. Amazing verse. I will trust we'll have some time to explore that. He's claiming the name that God gave to Moses when Moses said, who should I say is sending me? The Lord said, I am that I am. I don't need to explain myself or give anything other than that. I am. Jesus was saying, before there was an Abraham, before there was a Moses, before there was an Adam, I am. He could not have been claiming anything but preexistence with God. It's more explicit than ever in John 17, verse 5. When we hear Jesus pray on the night before the cross, Father, glorify me with the glory I had, listen, in your presence before the world began. Amazing. He's saying, Father, I've come on this errand from eternity into history. Now you're going to take me back again, and I'm looking forward to that glory again that I had with you. Pre-existence establishes for us that Jesus Christ is a reliable eyewitness who can testify about mysteries of God that no one else can tell, no one else can guess at, because he was part of them. He participated in the secret councils that formed the universe, that formed the plan of salvation. 
He is the master key to the deep mysteries of the Godhead. And so he can disclose the high and deep truths of divine existence. Secondly, I would look to John 1-2 to bring you then the, the real truth, and not that preexistence isn't important, but if anything more important, what comes in 1-2, the Word was not only with God, the Word was God. This Christ who's being discussed was God. We need to discuss the divine nature of Christ. He had a distinct form that he was with the Father, somehow different from the Father, yet he was the same God as the Father was God. Now, of course, you know we're into here the biggest mystery of all. Muslims laugh at Christianity and say, you have three gods. We say, no, we don't have three gods. We have one God in three persons, and that is mysterious, and that is deep, and that is difficult. And yet it conveys important truth. We've used that Nicene Creed this morning. We like to use that in December, the wonderful way in which fathers of the church hammered out these truths. They did it in debate because folks were coming along and saying, look, I don't get it. Either Jesus is fully human or he's fully divine, but he can't be both. And the fathers of the councils at Nicaea in 325 and Chalcedon in 451 were wise and discerning and biblical as they prayed, as they thought, as they tried to understand what the Scriptures were saying. They said, no, wait a minute. This paradox that you're pointing to is only a problem to human logic. It's not a problem to God. And they came up with language that said, we must neither confuse the persons of the Godhead nor divide them in substance. We must preserve the mystery that is here. Jesus was fully God and fully man. It's not an either or. It's a both and. And So they came out with that wonderful language that you confessed this morning, that he is very God, a very God. He's not a secondary deity. He is God come in flesh. A century later, Augustine was arguing on the same subject and trying to spell it out for people, and he used a, a simple illustration. It helps me a little bit anyway. Is he said, how do you separate, Augustine said, how do you separate between the sun in the heavens at noon and its rays as they come to you and warm you and even burn your skin? He said, will you separate and say that those rays don't belong to the sun? And yet the sun is how many million miles away, and its rays are here touching you. He also said, will you separate a flame from the warmth and light that it gives off? They are the same and yet mysteriously distinct. So, he said, are the persons of the Trinity the same and yet mysteriously distinct. We come to Jesus saying something that has to be among the most wonderful and astonishing of all his statements, John 14 Nine, when he says, he that has seen me has seen the Father. You young people don't know that once upon a time in this land, people were locked up for mental illness. They went around saying utterly crazy-sounding, impossible things. A doctor could have them committed to an asylum, and they might never emerge again from locked doors if they went around telling people, I'm God. 
If you've seen me, you've seen God. I would think their relatives, if they were of a mind, could have easily committed such a person. And yet, here is Jesus saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is God with us. We call him Emmanuel, God with us. This is an amazing thing. It's a mystery. And yet, we're clearly being told that Jesus, the Christ, is God. John 1.18 is going to conclude to say, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. He has made him known. Now, I'll have people once in a great while come along, and I know that this is a general question that's out there. People will say, do I have to admit Jesus is divine to be a Christian? I'm wondering really what they're asking. They're saying, well, is Christianity just a system of morality or good ideals, and I can sort of hop on the wagon of that and say, yes, Jesus is great at, at ideals and good morality and, and fine teaching of kindness and forgiveness and all that. Nelson Mandela taught that. We honor him as a human being who brought about racial reconciliation and taught good ideals. Is that where Jesus is? Is he a couple steps above Nelson Mandela? Do I have to say Jesus is divine to be a Christian is the question. Well, I say to that person, look, do you have to use flour to bake bread? If you build a house, do you have to put a roof on it? If you were to build a car from the ground up, does it need an engine? Those are the same questions as when you ask, do I have to believe Jesus is divine to be a Christian? Those who do not admit these essential truths pinned right here in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, that the Word was God, are not Christians. They may be admirers of Christianity. They may somehow have some of the ideals or the general milieu culturally of Christianity, but they're not Christians if they will not admit to the deity of Jesus Christ as the essential non-negotiable cornerstone of Christian faith. It's the key right above the door, and you won't get in the house without it. All that Jesus Christ was and said and did represents God's first and best word to tell you who he is. And if you won't take his word as he's given it in Christ, then you're not in the kingdom of God. Now, the third main point we would make today here is more from verses 3 through 5 of John 1, and I must gloss them a bit here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. But I would call this third point a declaration of the creative power of Christ, the divine word, the creative power of Christ. Look what's being said here. It goes back to the original creation. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Moons, mountains, oceans, elephants, insects, you name it. Made by him. He was a participant in the first creation. My former church in Maryland, we dealt with a very troubled woman for a period of time was in that church. She was clearly had mental illness, but it was really difficult because she asserted her mental illness upon the congregation in very difficult ways. And one time I was teaching a a small group, just a small class, 
And somehow we came up upon the, the truth of Christ being part of creation. And this woman very boldly contradicted me in front of the class and said, Oh, no, that's wrong. Jesus did not participate in creation. The Father did the creation, not the... No. Well, I pulled out some texts and worked through it. I knew that she was coming from an occult background that would have taught that, the separation of Christ from creation, but I showed her how the Scripture taught that he did, Colossians 1 and other passages. Christ was in the creation. I enjoy, I show what an old fuddy-duddy I am, and I tell you every once in a while what I watch on TV, and one show I watch that all the young people will scorn is Antiques Roadshow. And you say, well, he likes that because he is an antique. (laughs) Well, I enjoy Antiques Roadshow. I like people bringing in these things, you know, and sometimes something really ugly is very valuable, and sometimes people think it's valuable and it isn't. But I've learned that if they bring in pottery or... uh, silver or maybe glassware, the first thing that the evaluator is going to do is turn it over and look at the bottom. Because almost all of those objects have, usually it might be a few numbers, it might be initials, it might be a a little distinctive stamp of some symbol or something. And with that, a knowledgeable person can tell you where the object was made, uh, what country, maybe even what factory, perhaps even an individual artisan that that worked on that and and to find out, is this really something very valuable or is it just quite common? The maker's mark tells the difference. Well, ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus Christ looks at the creation of this world today, when he looks at, yes, that is snow coming out of the sky. I see you all looking at it. When he looks at this beautiful world that he's made and everything in it, everything that flies and crawls and swims, He looks at it and he says, my maker's mark is on all of that. There's not an atom or a molecule organized into any complex structure, whether animate or inanimate, that I cannot look upon and say, that is mine. Christ, the creator, by his power, Colossians 1 says he not only made all things, he holds them together. Wonderful truths. Well, Look what's being said here, though, as this text bridges into verses 4 and 5. Not only was this creative power of Christ at the first creation, but he's present now in the world as the power of a new creation. For he comes with life, and his life is the light of men, and his light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Those who come to him encounter for the first time groping along in a dark world where there are no answers and and things don't make sense and and two and two does not make four and and they're saying, where is something true? Where's something I can rely on? Where's some basis of meaning? And the light of Christ comes into that darkness. And suddenly people can see things as they really are. They couldn't see it before. And they have life, new life, remade in the image of a life that transforms them, that forgives them, that gives them hope for the first time. Life and light, Christ's transformational work of a new creation. And we'll have more to speak about that in days to come. I want to say this. You realize the tremendous claims Scripture makes for Jesus Christ. This is a pretty basic subject, but John puts it right here because it's basic 
It's fundamental. It's as important as flour in a, in a bread recipe. Do you realize the claims Scripture makes for Jesus Christ? He's not merely a great human being to be exalted and given a 10-day funeral like Nelson Mandela, who does deserve the world's honor for the way he resisted revenge and cried for reconciliation among races when he could have held in his hand the powder keg of a country and said, let's burn it down. He said instead, let's forgive those who've been our oppressors. That's to be admired. Is that the level at which Jesus exists? Another Nelson Mandela? Or isn't John saying he is so very much more? He's of one essence with the Creator God. He's the Lord of constellations. He rules over the things God has made. We recently had the 50th anniversary, as I'm sure you remember, just a couple weeks ago of the Kennedy assassination. Many Christians know that on the day Kennedy died, of course, all other world news was basically blotted out. But a very famous Christian died on the day Kennedy was assassinated, and his name is C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis wrote what might have been one of his best books. You could argue with me about which you think is best, but mere Christianity certainly stands still today as a pillar book by this great author. And there's a quote in that book that many of you have heard, I know, and so I'm boring a few of you, but it bears repeating whether you've heard it before or not, and maybe some of you have never heard it. Probably Lewis's most famous quoted paragraph. Let me read it to you. People often say a really foolish thing about Christ when they say, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I cannot take his claim to be God. Lewis said, this is the one thing we must not say. For a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic or possibly the devil from hell. You must make your choice, he said. Either Jesus was and is the Son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit on him, kill him as a demon, or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Those are the choices. Do not come to him with this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He did not leave that option open to us. He did not intend to. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is this one called the Word at the front door of John? Maybe you're even a person here today or hearing me on the radio who wonders if there is a God. Is there anybody to unscramble this mess of a creation that we're in? Our politicians sure aren't doing it. Our schools don't seem to be doing it very well. The key to it all is a person. Not a philosopher's construct of what God is, a person. A person who came outside of our world with the divine existence of God and comes as light and life in the darkness to change our lowly lives. Have you asked this person to take the rulership of your life? 
Have you said to this person, this Lord Christ, I don't have an answer that even comes close to you. Will you take hold of me and transform me in the light of your cross and your resurrection and your eternal coming again to judge all of history and make me your own? That's what he says he will do. And you will never be the same. You will find that this gospel of John has the same key eventually at the back door of the gospel as at the front. And by that I mean John 20, 31. The verse at the end that tells everything beginning from 1-1 to 20-31. Here's what John wrote for you to understand. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing this have life through his name. Amen. Father, thank you for this wonderful gospel. We look forward to exploring all that you gave through your servant John. Thank you for Jesus Christ. We call him our Lord. We call him our creator. We call him the all-powerful one who can change us out of the shame of our sins and our willfulness and our pride and our adolescent behavior with one another. So, Lord, take hold of us that by faith we might bow day by day before him whom you sent to make yourself known. In Jesus' name, amen.